Ukrainian forces have embarked on a successful counteroffensive and claim swaths at the south and east of the country, dealing a heavy blow to Russian forces as the war marks 200 days. We'll have the latest from Ukraine coming up on this Monday, September 12th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, we'll hear from the former national coordinator for counteroffensive in the UK about how England is prepping security for Queen Elizabeth's funeral in London this week. In parts of the US, some state lawmakers don't just want to ban abortion, they want to criminalize those who seek abortions. We continue to see a minority of legislators who have control in, in various states push these unpopular and harmful policies forward. We'll take you to Idaho. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Ukraine is carrying out a counteroffensive in the east at a brisk pace. NPR's Jason Bobian reports troops are taking back towns in days that it took Russia weeks to capture. A spokesman for the Ukrainian Armed Forces says their troops regained control of 20 towns and villages in and around the Kharkiv region over a 24-hour period. The spokesman says Russian troops hastily retreated deeper into Russian-held portions of Luhansk and Donetsk, and some retreated all the way back into Russia itself. Images on social media show Ukrainian soldiers putting up the yellow and blue Ukrainian flag on bombed-out municipal buildings that, just a few days ago, were occupied by Moscow's forces. Meanwhile, an official with Ukraine's Southern Military Command says that over the last two weeks, Ukrainian troops have retaken five villages and hundreds of square miles of territory from the Russians in the strategic Kherson region. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Lviv, Ukraine. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce says a potential national railway strike would amount to economic disaster. Negotiations between unions and the nation's biggest freight railroads have been going on for years, and a cooling-off period ends Friday. If the two sides fail to come to terms then, the chamber is asking Congress to be ready to step in. Today, in a court filing, former President Donald Trump objected to the two special master candidates put forward by the Justice Department. His legal team saying he would provide the rationale for that if and when the court orders. Meantime, NPR's Kerry Johnson reports Trump's lawyers appear to be disputing whether the documents the FBI took from Mar-a-Lago are in fact classified. Trump's lawyers say the ongoing criminal investigation is merely a document storage dispute that spiraled out of control. The Justice Department's investigating possible obstruction and willful retention of information related to the national defense. The FBI recovered more than 100 pages of material marked classified during its August search at Trump's Florida resort. But attorneys for the former president say those papers may not actually be classified, and they say Trump has a, quote, unfettered right to access presidential records. Federal prosecutors say the judge's order is doing irreparable harm to national security because it bars them from using classified material in the criminal probe. Kerry Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Queen Elizabeth's coffin is due to be brought to London tomorrow, but today it's in Edinburgh, and NPR's Frank Langfitt was there to watch the royal procession make its way through the streets of the Scottish capital. It was a moving scene in this Gothic city, a big black hearse carrying the oak coffin of Queen Elizabeth up the cobblestone street known as the Royal Mile, past turrets and spires. And on the sides, crowds 13, 14 deep, clapping somberly as the hearse passed. And behind the hearse walked the Queen's children. Frank Langford, NPR News, Edinburgh. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. President Biden says federal funding will make possible needed upgrades at Logan's Airport International Terminal. Biden visited Logan today to tout the $62 million his administration is allocating to address overcrowding and inefficiency at Terminal E. He says the money will help Boston better serve travelers who have dealt with years of flight delays. Go to expanding capacity by adding more gates, baggage claims, ticket counters. It's going to increase accessibility by adding ramps, rails, elevators, wheelchair-accessible shuttles and buses. Biden is set to speak this hour at the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library about his plan to expand America's biotechnology capabilities in the fight against cancer. A Boston-based scientist will lead the nation's new health research agency. President Biden said today he'll appoint Dr. Renee Wegerson as the first director of the Advanced Research Project Agency for Health. The group aims to research and prevent diseases, including cancer. Wegerson is currently vice president of local biotech company Ginkgo Bioworks. She is set to appear with Biden during his Boston visit this hour. A boil water order is in effect in Mansfield. The town's drinking water tested positive for E. coli bacteria last week. The town is giving out free bottled water to residents until 7 o'clock today at the Department of Public Works. It'll do the same for the next two afternoons. And gasoline prices in Massachusetts are down from last week. The average cost for a gallon of regular unleaded is now $3.80. That's according to AAA. The price is about 12 cents lower than last week. It's still nearly 10 cents higher than the national average, though. Gas prices have been falling for three straight months. 74 degrees in the Boston area, kind of sticky out there today. Clouds thickening overnight tonight, about 68 overnight. Tomorrow, 80 degrees or so, clouds sticking around. We should get hit with some severe thunderstorms, especially tomorrow afternoon, and then a clear, sunny day ahead for Wednesday. This is WBUR. It's 4.06. WBUR supporters include Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. And Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In a striking development over the weekend, Ukrainian forces broke through Russia's front lines in the Northeast. Ukrainian officials now claim they are in charge of towns held for months by Russia. Videos appearing to show recently liberated Ukrainians welcoming soldiers are circulating on social media. Like this one, posted to Twitter by Ukrainian human rights lawyer Oleksandra Mitvichu. In the video, three old women embrace Ukrainian soldiers, weeping and kissing them on the cheek. The women offer food to the soldiers, who decline to take it and tell the women to stay inside. The shelling isn't quite over. In Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, Vitalia Sferj waited anxiously throughout the weekend for updates. She and her husband are from Kharkiv, but they were displaced by the war. We're following the news, uh, we check the map uh, every 30 minutes. Sverge told NPR the gains made against Russia have improved her morale, and she expressed pride in her country's troops. Now everyone knows what is the Ukrainian army. 
everything will be Ukraine. No. As we've just heard, Ukrainians are closely following this military offensive. But how did Ukraine carry out this lightning operation after two months of a virtual stalemate in the war? To hear how Ukraine pulled it off, we're joined by NPR's national security correspondent, Greg Myrie. Hey, Greg. Hi, Juana. So before we break this down, can you tell us where the Ukrainian offensive stands right now? Well, it's still ongoing. The Ukrainians have taken around two dozen towns and villages in these past few days. It's spread over a thousand square miles. Now, Russia had to fight long and hard for weeks and weeks to take over these towns, and now it's lost them in days without really putting up a fight. And the significance is that it will be much, much harder for Russia to resupply its forces in the east, which has been the main battleground. And one important, important town in particular we want to highlight, it's called Izum. It's this road and railway hub, Russian troops and vehicles and supplies all flowed through this town for months. Now it's in Ukrainian hands. Okay, Greg, now until just a few days ago, we were talking about a Ukrainian offensive in the south of the country. And this big breakthrough in the east seemed to frankly come out of nowhere. How did this happen? Yeah, Ukraine was publicly talking about an offensive in the south uh, and seemed to be taking away their own element of surprise. The Russians believed them. They began moving some of their best Russian troops from the east to the south to reinforce positions there. Uh, Ukraine did, in fact, launch an offensive in the south a couple weeks ago. But the bigger Ukrainian offensive is taking place exactly where these Russian troops pulled out in the east. Military analyst Dmitry Alperovich says this is a major development. This pullback was one of the biggest blunders of the war thus far. It presented an incredible opportunity for the Ukrainians to, to move forward and capture these critical supply railroad junctures. And that uh, presents really uh, significant problems for the Russians. And Greg, what role has U.S. assistance played in this offensive? Well, it's been very significant, at least in terms of laying the groundwork for this offensive. This has been an artillery war, and the U.S. keeps providing longer range and more powerful artillery weapons, particularly these HIMARS, which allows Ukraine to fire accurately for up to 50 miles. This is the kind of capability Ukraine simply didn't have at the beginning of the war. And now on the intelligence front, we don't know the specifics, neither side is talking about it. But we do know intelligence sharing between the Ukrainians and the Americans has been going on throughout the war. We know they're in contact on a daily basis. And given this background, it's it's very reasonable to assume the U.S. and Ukrainians are surely comparing notes about the Russian military and where they see it as most vulnerable. And what about Russia? How is Russia responding? Well, Russia keeps trying to present this as some sort of orderly pullback, but the evidence to the contrary is just absolutely overwhelming. The Russians abandon this large quantities of military equipment. It's spawning all these jokes that Russia has become Ukraine's largest military supplier. And on the ground, Russia hasn't countered the Ukraine advance, but it has fired dozens of missiles to take out electrical power stations. And I think we haven't seen how Russia is going to respond in the east and one region where it had made some progress. Again, here's Dmitry Alperovich. What this means strategically is that it will make it very, very difficult for the Russians to execute ongoing operations. So strategically, it's a huge victory for Ukraine. 
So to your mind, is it fair to call this a turning point in the war? You know, probably a little early to say that definitively, but it certainly could be. I mean, there was this real question about whether Ukraine could reverse Russian gains. And now we have a clear answer. Yes, they can. Uh, We could also say this is really the third major battlefield development of the war. First, the Russians tried to seize the capital, Kiev, at the very start, but they were stopped and had to retreat. And then second, Russia had this massive grinding push to take territory in the east in the spring and the summer. And now Ukraine's lightning advance uh, has reclaimed a big chunk of this territory. All right, Greg, thanks so much. My pleasure. That was NPR's Greg Myrie. One week from today, monarchs, presidents, and prime ministers from around the world will converge on Westminster Abbey in London for the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. Outside the Abbey, they are expecting huge crowds who want to pay their respects. We're already seeing that on streets in Scotland, where people are hoping for a glimpse of the hearse. Many more are expected in London, where the Queen lies in state later this week. Will you put those crowds and the funeral guest list packed with dignitaries together, and you have got a formidable challenge for security officials. I want to bring in someone with a sense of that challenge. Nick Aldworth is former UK National Coordinator for Counterterrorism. Nick Aldworth, welcome. Hello. Hi. I'm trying to think of what must be the most recent precedent that, if anything, might give something resembling a roadmap. And I was thinking of 25 years ago and the funeral of Princess Diana and all the people who descended on London um, in the days uh, leading up to that. Is that the closest precedent? I think in terms of um, the volumes of people uh, arriving, I think we are on a par with Diana. The thing that's changed in that period is, is the threat profile has changed dramatically. Yeah, talk to me about that. 25 years, it's a it's a very different city. It's a very different world. It is, absolutely. And if I go to the reference point of, uh, you know, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, um, she died a year after 9-11, which, of course, saw the arguably the global transformation in, in how we think about terrorism and approach terrorism. Um, since that time, we've seen that metamorphosis of terrorism take a further step from being, you know, uh, constructed and organised and um directed by terrorist entities to a um, almost a societal mobilization of lone actors, as we call them over here, people who are self-radicalizing uh, and then go on to either plan an attack or actually conduct one. Hmm. So apply that to now. If you were in charge of trying to figure out how to protect and keep everybody safe at these events that will unfold a week from today, what, what would be the top of the checklist? So the easy one almost is vehicles. Um, There are extensive barrier systems around Westminster. Uh, A few years ago, we invested quite heavily in in creating a semi-permanent gating structure there, which we can effectively close down that footprint to stop any vehicles coming in. The the real challenge are these lone actors who... um, more often than not, do not feature on the uh, intelligence services radar and are capable of carrying um, small, easily concealed bladed weapons in particular into crowds. There is a search and screening operation around the Palace of Westminster, which is what we call our parliament. So those people who wish to file past uh, Her Majesty's coffin and, and pay their respects, uh, they will have been screened. That's a pretty easy and common thing for us to achieve. You've been speaking about uh, roadblocks, uh, 
searching people for weapons, that type thing. You're also, I suppose, worrying about airspace. You're also worrying about what's going on underground with the tube, the, the subway system there in London, protecting all of it simultaneously. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So actually the safest place to be uh, over the next week or so will be in that central footprint because most of our resources will be focused uh, on that area. Um, in terms of airspace, um, we now have a uh, much more sophisticated approach to protecting against drones. I was going to say that was another thing that would have changed radically since since Prentice Diana's funeral 25 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. We've had um, some, some recent cases in the UK where um, drones have been used um, nefariously. And we've been very, very effective at uh, detecting them, tracking them back and arresting offenders. Uh, here in the United States, when there's a big state funeral, um, it tends to happen often at Washington National Cathedral, and you have Secret Service playing a lead role. You have all kinds of other agencies involved, from the local D.C. police to the the security entourages that accompany foreign leaders who may have come to town. Who is running the show in the U.K.? So the Metropolitan Police Service are running the show. There's no ambiguity about that at all. Um, they are incredibly well practiced at working with uh, visiting nationals. The Americans are very demanding customers, um, and, and that's okay. You know, your president would expect to be treated in the same way over here as King Charles would be expected to be treated uh, at some future point that hopefully he, he visits uh, the US. Nick Aldworth, thank you. You're welcome. He is former UK National Coordinator for Counterterrorism, also founder and director of Risk to Resolution Limited, a private security consultancy. Most people who live in mobile home parks don't own the land underneath their homes, and that can leave them at the mercy of the big companies that do. Because despite the name, mobile homes really aren't that mobile. The park knows that they cannot pick up their home and leave, and so these complaints have really just gone ignored. Today on our daily podcast, Consider This, the story of a group of residents who are taking their landlord to court. Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the oldest boys' choir in Europe today lets in girls for the first time. On Wall Street, stocks gain ground for the fourth straight session. The Dow rose nearly three-quarters of a percent, 230 points, to close at 32,381. S&P gained more than one percent to finish up at 4110, and the Nasdaq pulled in more than one and a quarter percent to end the day at 12,266. Details tonight on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30. It's now 4.19. Funding for WBOR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases, committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Red Sox get the day to gear up for a quick visit from the Yankees tomorrow and Wednesday. And a signature college hockey event will return to Fenway Park this winter. Frozen Fenway will pit some of the region's top college hockey teams against each other. The men's competition will be held January 7th with Northeastern and the University of Connecticut. And UMass will play Boston College. Tickets for those games go on sale January 22nd. And uh, the actually tickets go on sale September 22nd, that is. The women's date has not yet been set, but it'll pit Boston. 
Boston University against Holy Cross, who's playing in the second game, has not yet been announced. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums. Open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries. Free Sundays and new Museums at Night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Clouds collecting as the day continues, temperatures dipping to the upper 60s tonight, then tomorrow could inch up to 80 degrees, possible thunderstorms in the afternoon. 74 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. On a Monday, it's all things considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Starting today, one of the oldest boys' choirs in Europe will begin admitting girls for the first time since it was founded in the year 975 A.D. The Regensburg Domspatzen, or Cathedral Sparrows in English, is changing its course as it recovers from a dark period in its thousand-year history. NPR's Rob Schmitz brings us this story. The Cathedral Sparrows seem to be chirping all at once on their bus ride from their boarding school to a concert venue in their Bavarian hometown of Regensburg. The boys range from eight years old to teenagers. They represent the Regensburg Cathedral, whose Gothic spires have dominated the city's skyline since the year 700. A few centuries later, this boys' choir was established. And through the next thousand years, Its members have sung the music of countless composers, each one's life going by in the relative blink of an eye, their work living on through these voices. On this evening, the choir sings music from Beethoven to celebrate the composer's 250th birthday. They're all dressed in navy suits, white shirts and ties. They're all holding books of sheet music in front of them. And of course, they're all boys. That last part will change starting this week. I was quite surprised to hear they're letting girls into our school. I'm a bit skeptical as to how well the school will function with girls. We're so used to just being among boys. 13-year-old Johannes Feber hasn't yet warmed up to the idea of choir girls taking classes alongside the choir boys. He and his friend Maximilian Steiner relax after a full day of classes in the choir's boarding school, which, apart from music, specializes in the sciences. Steiner, who's 15, feels better about admitting girls into the choir. I think it's a step in the right direction, and it's long overdue. We're way behind on this issue. It's a matter of equality. Girls should have the same opportunities as us boys when it comes to education. My sister couldn't come to the school, and now it's too late for her. The first female members of the Regensburg Domspatzen will attend school with the boys, but will have a separate choir that will be under the direction of a female conductor. Designing to allow girls in was part of a long and broader decision-making process about the future of the choir. Christian Heiss is the conductor of the boys' choir. 
Und wir haben in den letzten Jahren hier We made a lot of changes here in recent years. We rebuilt the school, modernized it, made it nicer. So then we asked, how do we want to use these new facilities? We came to the conclusion to allow girls to benefit from them as the boys do. Heist calls it a revolutionary step in the choir's thousand-year history, and it comes after what was a tough century for the choir. Nuremberg, 1938. At an annual Nazi rally, Adolf Hitler addressed Germany's young people. Deutschland wird einzeln. The Regensburg Domspatzen sang at this rally. Hitler was a fan of the choir, friends with its director, and gave regular donations to it. Weil er sehr viel direkte Unterstützung. It was Hitler who made the choir what it is today. Magnus Meyer was a choir boy with the Domspatzen in the 1980s. He says Hitler used the Domspatzen as a propaganda tool for Nazi Germany. In the run-up to World War II, the choir toured internationally for the first time and sang secular songs, a showcase supported by the Nazi regime. All of that ended at the conclusion of the Second World War, but another period of darkness for the choir followed. Decades of systemic, physical, and sexual abuse. And as a young boy, Magnus Meyer was one of hundreds of victims. The school director then, Johann Meyer, was one of the worst. He'd been an officer in the war, and his punishment methods were similar to the sort Nazis carried out in the camps. I truly believe if murder were not a crime, they would have killed us. According to court documents, when Meyer was a 10-year-old choir boy, he was regularly hit in the face by his school director. Whenever his homework had mistakes, the choir prefect punched him with a closed fist in the stomach. The same happened when he and his friends were caught chatting at night in their rooms. Because of what was happening to me at school, I deliberately did my worst work. I handed in blank pages for assignments so that I'd be kicked out of school. An investigation commissioned by the Catholic Diocese of Regensburg found that Meyer was one of 547 Domspatzen choir boys who were subjected to physical and sexual abuse at the hands of priests and teachers at the boarding school from 1945 to 2015. The choir was run by Jörg Radzinger, elder brother of former Pope Benedict XVI, when most of the abuse occurred. Ratzinger denied knowing about it, and by the time the abuse came to light, most of the perpetrators had died. The church compensated victims like Meyer with payments of around $30,000 each. As kids, we didn't know any better. We thought the beatings and abuse were normal. It wasn't until later that I realized none of it was normal. And that's when I started to deal with the trauma. That's the problem. We all thought we deserved it, that it was God's will. It's only now that I realize why I still struggle with certain things. While the Regensburg Domspatzen Choir has moved on from the abuse scandal, Meyer, now 50, still struggles with post-traumatic stress disorder and borderline personality disorder. He says the abuse consumed his entire life, preventing him from going to university, finding a meaningful career. His settlement hasn't been enough to pay for the therapy he still requires, and he's filed several lawsuits over it. Meyer says the decision to allow girls into the choir is a good one, and he says it's likely an effort to rebrand the choir and to try and leave the past behind. As for him, he says he'd never send a child to the choir.
Back in Regensburg, choir director Christian Heiss says admitting girls to the choir has nothing to do with the abuse scandal. He says the choir can never sweep its past under the carpet, but the abuse happened in the previous century, the choir leadership has changed, and the church led a thorough investigation listening to the victims. And this is now our job, to make sure it never happens again. It's a highly sensitive issue we take very seriously. At the Domspatzen concert, audience member Sabine Schick says she's thrilled for the choir's future. She says the choir is special and means a lot to the region. She says the abuse scandal was dreadful and shameful, but she's trying to focus on the positive. Why not move forward with the girls' choir after a thousand years, she asks. While she doesn't want to throw away old traditions, she says it's always good to venture on a new path. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Regensburg. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the prospect of ceasefire talks in northern Ethiopia after two years of bloody conflict. In the forecast, rest of the day could be a little bit stingier on the sunshine. Clouds collecting as the day continues. Temperatures only dipping to the upper 60s tonight. Tomorrow could inch up to 80, maybe some thunderstorms letting loose tomorrow afternoon. National Weather Service says some of them could be heavy, especially inland. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books, Boston Edition, at the Seaport Summer Market this Friday through Sunday. Best sellers, staff favorites, and more. PorterSquareBooks.com. The Museum of Science. It's time to talk about mental health. Join the conversation at Mental Health Mind Matters, a new groundbreaking exhibit. Tickets at MOS.org. And Welch and Forbes, over 180 years of experience providing trustee services for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. As Ukraine's military offensive continues to retake territory in the eastern part of the country from Russia, the UN's Atomic Watchdog Agency wants a ceasefire around the Zaporizhia nuclear plant in Ukraine. Both countries have blamed each other for the shelling and fighting that puts the plant in danger. Now the International Atomic Energy Agency reports that the last reactor at the plant has been shut down. Here's NPR's Jeff Brumfield. The real concern here is the reactors themselves. So nuclear reactors are a bit more like cooking with charcoal, if you will. When you shut them off, there's still a lot of heat inside the reactor core, and you need to keep water moving through those reactors. 
So when there's offsite power, you can just move that water through. But if you lose it, you have to activate something else. They were depending on that one reactor for a while. Now they're going to have to rely on emergency diesel generators if they lose power again. And that's what people are worried about. That's NPR's Jeff Brumfield. In Florida, court proceedings began today to determine the sentencing for Nicholas Cruz, the man who shot dead 17 people at a Parkland area high school four and a half years ago. NPR's Greg Allen has the story. Prosecutors presented weeks of chilling testimony from students and teachers who survived the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Jurors watched chilling surveillance video of Cruz firing his AR-15-style rifle in hallways and into classrooms, shooting some victims multiple times. And jurors viewed graphic autopsy photos of the 14 students and three staff members killed. Defense attorneys have focused their case on Cruz's childhood. Born to a mother who abused alcohol and crack cocaine, adopted as a baby by a 50-year-old mother who was slow to seek help for her son's behavioral and developmental problems. Cruz has already pleaded guilty to the murders. The jury will decide whether he receives a sentence of life in prison or the death penalty. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. President Joe Biden is making his second stop of the day in Boston. He's about to speak at the JFK Library in Dorchester. He's set to announce new steps to advance the so-called cancer moonshot to reduce cancer deaths. Earlier today, the president met with city and state officials at Logan Airport. He spoke about how new federal funding for infrastructure will fund an expansion of the airport's terminal, international terminal, that's Terminal C or make that terminal E. Boston police are investigating the stabbing of a student inside a city high school this morning. Police say the 18-year-old male was attacked inside Jeremiah Burke High School in Dorchester about 11 o'clock. Police say the victim was stabbed in the shoulder, suffered non-life-threatening injuries, and was taken to a hospital. The suspect fled the scene by the time police arrived. Graduate students at Boston University are relaunching their campaign for a union. A similar effort in 2016 stalled. Since then, student workers have joined unions at Harvard, MIT, and Tufts. And at BU, many say they are still struggling to live near campus. WBR's Max Larkin has more. Student life often involves a little thrift, but Alex Lyons says too many graduate students in Boston are pushed to extreme economies. Lyon is a fifth-year graduate student in biology at BU and goes without pay in the summer. So I'll skip meals. I will neglect to get medical care and will try to self-treat. I'll walk 40-ish minutes to an hour to campus rather than take the tea. Organizers say they're hoping a union can get more students on better paid and year-round stipends. Boston University declined to comment on an ongoing labor matter. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Boston University holds the broadcast license for WBUR. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Globe, presenting Globe Summit 2022, The Next Boston, September 14th to 16th. The second annual event features speakers including actor Sam Waterston, Mayor Michelle Wu, Jamie Dimon, and more. Registration at globe.com summit. Red Sox have the night off. Clouds are letting in some sunshine every now and then. It's sticky out there, pretty warm too, 75 degrees. Tonight, you may need to kick off the blanket. Lows about 68. Tomorrow, cloudy and wet. Highs about 80. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. 
Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at EasyCater.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Civil war began in Ethiopia just days before U.S. elections, so back in November 2020. Since then, war has killed thousands of civilians, displaced millions more. Today, though, there is cause for optimism around ending that conflict. Rebels in Tigray in northern Ethiopia say they would be willing to observe an immediate ceasefire and take part in peace negotiations with the Ethiopian government. The White House is welcoming this announcement. Fighting had resumed in August after a previous five-month ceasefire. Let's bring in NPR's Ader Peralta. Hey, Ader. Hey, Mary Louise. So give us just the briefest summary of, as I said, the two years this conflict has been going on. What's been happening? Yeah, look, to simplify it, um, it began as a fight between Ethiopia's old government and its new one. And over the months, it pulled in neighboring Eritrea, as well as other armed groups in the country. It deteriorated into a full-blown conflict that has been called a dirty war. Um, We've seen rape used as a weapon of war. We've seen all manner of attacks against civilians by all sides. And we've also seen the government blockade a whole region controlled by rebels. And that has left millions of civilians on the verge of famine. In March, the government declared a ceasefire. The fighting mostly stopped. Some humanitarian aid started flowing into rebel territory. And both sides took steps toward peace talks. But last month, Both sides accused each other of breaking the ceasefire, and we're back to an all-out war in Ethiopia. I think it's worth underlining that this is already one of the worst humanitarian disasters in the world, and this new fighting doesn't make it any better. Ah. Um, So new fighting, but the main rebel group says, again, we're willing to talk. How, Mm -hmm. How good news is that? It's good news, but we should be cautious. Uh, First of all, because we haven't heard any reaction from the government. And then when you read this statement closely, the rebels say they are open to an African Union-led dialogue, but not necessarily to one led uh, by the former Nigerian president, who is the AU's chief negotiator. That has been a sticking point before, and it's likely to be one again. And this is also a conflict with a lot of moving parts. At this point, there are rebellions across the country. The Oromo Liberation Army is fighting the government just outside the capital city, Addis Ababa. And there are also huge questions about language, about culture, about land that underpin this war that still need to be debated. So in the minute or so that we have left, it sounds like this is a piece of good news, but it's going to be a long way from that to to a durable peace in Ethiopia. Yeah, right before um, this round of violence started, I sat down with Mohamed Derir. He is one of the people tasked with the government to start a national dialogue. And I asked him, how does he not despair? Because in all honesty, his job uh, to end this civil war through dialogue seems hopeless. Let's listen to what he told me. This is the moment we have to look into our past, to reconcile, to forgive each other. There is no other choice. This is the only solution to catapult ourselves from the quagmire where we are. He says Ethiopians are tired of war and everyone just needs to talk. Right. NPR's Ader Peralta, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you, Mary Louise.
In the months since Roe v. Wade was overturned, state laws around abortion have been rapidly changing. Idaho is considering one extreme, the criminalization of people who seek abortions. Katie Riddle reports on how this is playing out along the Washington-Idaho border. People come from all over the country to the Planned Parenthood Clinic in Spokane. Washington has some of the strongest protections for abortion rights in the country. Many seeking the procedure here are from Idaho. Uh, well, my fiance is inside getting an abortion. Augustus Fink is playing with his two young kids on a grassy strip in the clinic's parking lot. Fink says there's no way he and his fiance can have another child. She's been working part-time as a hairdresser. He's between jobs. They're between houses. Childcare is already out of reach. We have these two we want to keep forever and we love more than anything. It's just not realistic, you know, to have another one. It took the couple weeks to save up the gas, the hotel, and the time off work they needed to get here from Idaho. The state has in place a near total abortion ban. The child either has a constitutional right to life or the child absolutely does not. Scott Herndon will more than likely become a Republican state senator in Idaho this year. He's running uncontested. I don't think it can be conditional. Once he's in the Senate, the evangelical minister plans to advocate for something known as abortion abolition, which allows prosecutors to charge a person who gets an abortion with murder. And what kind of punishments do you think would be appropriate? Well, I would, the great thing about the legislature is we don't actually assign the punishments. So it, Herndon is evasive about what that would look like in practice. But murder is serious, and classifying abortion as such could mean significant jail time. On this day, Herndon's standing on his 15 acres of land in the small town of Sandpoint, Idaho. It's about an hour from the Washington border. He lives here with his seven children and wife, Arlene Herndon. He was a long-haired vegan when I met him. Politics was not the couple's original plan. They met when they were both living in San Francisco. When her husband said he wanted to move to Idaho and build them a house, says Arlene Herndon, she was skeptical. Then he did it. Just researching and studying every facet from plumbing to septic to electrical. So he's a persistent guy. Yeah. That persistence has allowed him to build a construction business, and it's been helpful in advocating for years for some of the most extreme abortion regulation in the country. Like much of Idaho, Herndon's community leans Republican. But even here, it can be hard to find support for the idea of criminalizing those seeking abortion. That's a tricky subject. Lachelle Linscott is working at a coffee stand in downtown Sandpoint. A sign above the window offers free prayers to anyone who needs them. Myself being a Christian, I definitely think that that's a human life, you know? I don't care how many weeks you are, how small the embryo is, that's a life. I do think that, you know, circumstantially that there has to be a time where an abortion is the only way out. What about punishing women for having abortions, like equating abortions with homicide? I don't think that's right at all. We know that in states where abortion is no longer legal, those policies are not popular. Elizabeth Smith is with the New York-based Center for Reproductive Rights. A number of states have introduced legislation to further criminalize abortion. In at least one state, Louisiana, such a measure actually passed out of a House committee before it was killed. Smith says the idea of criminalization should not be dismissed, even if it doesn't currently have public support. And yet, we continue to see a minority of legislators who have control in, in various states push these unpopular and harmful policies forward. Hello. What day? 
back across the border at the clinic in Spokane, Augustus Fink gets a phone call from his fiancée. She's still inside the clinic. It's okay, babe. We'll figure it out. It's too late, she tells him. They can't do the procedure. Fink's shaken. Just come back out. Okay, we'll go. I love you. Okay. He says if they could have had the abortion in Idaho, they wouldn't have had to wait so long. They've already been planning a move out of the state. Now Augustus Fink is even more confident in that choice. Idaho, he says, is no longer safe. For NPR News, I'm Katie Riddle in Spokane. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Rattlesnakes in the West are a bit like sharks in the ocean. Fear has transformed them into deadly villains, even though they rarely kill humans. So let's take a few minutes to learn more about them. Here's Madeline Beck of the Mountain West News Bureau. Old Westerns often share one very similar bad guy. You're pretty good with that handgun, ain't you? That's from the 1967 movie, The Last Challenge. Second only to the Bible, Hollywood has done more to damage the reputation of the humble snake than any other single factor. That's David Jensen, who owns Wasatch Snake Removal in Utah. His colleagues work around much of the state helping relocate snakes. He argues rattlesnakes aren't evil monsters. Evil's not a force found in nature. Okay. There are no evil animals or clouds or trees or plants or water or whatever. Uh, evil's a, a human construct. He notes that in Utah, it's generally illegal to kill any rattlesnake species there. Some species are even protected in other states, like Wyoming's midget-faded rattlesnake and the New Mexico ridge-nosed rattlesnake. But not everyone follows the law. You even need a permit to move these venomous critters in many states, which is where organizations like Jensen's or wildlife officials come in to help. We remove the snake and return it safely back to habitat under a license from the Division of Wildlife Resources. However, you can kill rattlesnakes in Utah if you simply think they're a threat to your person or property. And that rule is the same across much of the Mountain West, from states like Montana and Nevada that hardly have any rattlesnake protections, to states like Colorado, which has its own snake hunting season. But how dangerous are these noisy snakes really? The actual threat to humans is extraordinarily low. The American Association of Poison Control Centers recorded about a thousand people who were bit by a rattlesnake last year. One of them died. That's a fairly typical year. Those numbers are nearly as low as U.S. shark fatalities. And the poison control centers say those who did die either didn't get the anti-venom in time or had an allergic reaction to the venom. However, you should still be wary. This summer, a six-year-old boy in Colorado died from a rattlesnake bite. And around 10% of those bit still face life-threatening effects, including nerve damage and amputation. Out in the foothills of Boise, Idaho, Christina Parker and I are poking around bushes looking for rattlesnakes with help from a metal snake grabbing tool. Yeah, this is sneaky. <laughs> Parker is with the U.S. Geological Survey and has studied rattlesnakes. She says rattlesnakes are chronically misunderstood. The snakes are more afraid of you than you are of them. These snakes are important to the ecosystem, eating vermin and cutting down on diseases they carry. Parker says you can discourage them from coming into your yard just by making sure it isn't inviting to prey like rodents or doesn't have shady hiding spaces like under a deck. However, in the unlikely event you do get bit. Don't tourniquet. Don't try sucking the venom out. Don't try any of those snake 
bite kits. Instead, she says make sure there isn't anything tight around the swelling bite area and call 911. Then call poison control centers. Poison control knows a lot better on care for venom injection than a lot of medical doctors because a lot of medical doctors don't have snake bites that often. Beyond that, Parker says just stay as calm as possible and get to the hospital. And one last thing, that old saying about baby rattlers being more deadly because they can't control the amount of venom they inject? That is 100% a myth. A baby snake bite may be even less of a threat because those little bodies have less venom. For NPR News, I'm Madeline Beck in Boise. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Still to come on All Things Considered, one man's search for American barbecue in southern China. There's good news for Patriots' ownership after yesterday's ugly loss to the Miami Dolphins. The Pats are the second most valuable sports franchise in the world, according to a new ranking from Forbes, which values the Pats at $6.4 billion. Only the Dallas Cowboys are estimated to be worth more. Last year, Forbes said the Pats were the world's eighth most valuable franchise. This is 90.9 WBUR, 75 degrees, pretty muggy out there. The forecast is coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Southern New Hampshire University, offering over 100 master's degrees online and on campus. Next term starts soon. snhu.edu. And the Museum of Fine Arts. View magnetic portraits of Barack and Michelle Obama at the MFA. Reserve tickets at mfa.org Obama. Supported by Bank of America. Clouds are letting in some sunshine every now and then. Sticky out there, pretty warm. It is now 75 degrees overnight tonight. Look for temperatures about 68. Then tomorrow, cloudy, wet and warm, up around 80 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. It is 449. WBUR supporters include Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine. Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the all-new 2023 Subaru vehicles are arriving. Love is out there. CitysideSubaru.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank. MathWorks.com GBFB. Man, prices are high, so buy now, pay later seems like a good idea. $100 would hurt, but if it feels like you can pay for it $25 over a few months, it doesn't hurt as much. I'm Kyle Rizdal. Yeah, just make sure you pay later, huh? That's next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. This is now the fourth day of school students are missing in Seattle. The new academic year should have started last week, but more than 6,000 teachers and other school staffers are on strike. Reporter Liliana Fowler from member station KNKX in Seattle has been covering the strike and its impacts. Hi there. Hi. So can you start by telling us what are teachers asking for in a new contract? Sure. So I spoke to the Seattle Education Association today, the teachers union, and they say a few issues are holding up any kind of agreement. One is mental health support for students. So social workers, nurses, counselors, they want help at all levels, elementary, middle, high school, and they want mental health resources to go to the students who need it the most. 
So they say that's black POC students and low income students. The union is also really emphasizing needing help for students whose first language isn't English. So help with translating in meetings or classes. Finally, they're wanting to raise wages for paraprofessionals or teacher's aides and office staff. Right now, that scale starts at $19.22 an hour. The union says they've seen ads for work at fast food chains here for more than that. So it's a matter of paying the people who teach kids what they're worth. Okay, so that's the teachers union. What are you hearing from the school district? In their last proposal, Seattle Public Schools offered mental health support, but only for high school students. Uh, That would not help elementary and middle school students struggle who are struggling with depression, anxiety, or other mental health problems early on. The teachers union says the district also hasn't committed to more language support, so translators for classes and meetings. The district is updating parents on a daily basis, but they're really not saying much beyond that, that they're beyond that they're making good progress on negotiations and that school will start as soon as an agreement is reached. This delay in classes starting has got to have been very disruptive for many families in Seattle. Were you hearing anything from parents about the strike and its impacts? A lot of parents understand the teachers' positions, that they're really trying to get students what they need. They agree mental health and language translations are crucial, but they are frustrated that it's come down to a strike. Even under normal circumstances, canceling classes is hard on parents. That this strike is coming after a lot of pandemic disruption makes it all even more difficult. The city has stepped in and tried to help. So it's offering free programming for children at community centers and distributing meals to those who might not otherwise be able to afford breakfast and lunch. Some parents and children join teachers in the picket line. Uh, Several parents have commented on social media that they're using the strike to teach their kids about labor negotiations. So it's a teachable moment. We've got about just 30 seconds left here. Where are negotiations heading now? The Seattle Education Association says they've been bargaining 12 hours a day and that they've started exchanging proposals in July. So district and the teachers union failed to reach an agreement by Wednesday. There's going to be a rally at the school board meeting that day. And teachers and staff will try to pressure the board to push district negotiators to come to an agreement. That's Liliana Fowler of member station KNKX in Seattle. Thank you. Thank you. When you're living far from home, you sometimes crave a taste you think you can only get at home. NPR international correspondent John Ruich decided to look for his craving in southern China this summer. Let me start by saying this. I love Chinese food. Dumplings, hot pot, jiao chang cai. I've spent years living in China, and when I'm in the country, it's mostly what I eat. But I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and in summer, we eat barbecued ribs slathered with a sticky sweet sauce. Sometimes I crave it, so one day a few weeks ago, in the southern Chinese city of Shenzhen, we went looking for it. When we asked around, we were pointed in the direction of a restaurant called Halftime, and its unlikely master of American barbecue. My name is Alexander uh, Nipop Alexander Sergeyevich. I'm from Ukraine, Kyiv. Nipop studied the culinary arts in college in Ukraine. He honed his skills in restaurant kitchens across Europe and in New York, but he discovered barbecue in Houston, Texas. I love this so much, and uh, I found one guy who makes barbecue in just his, nearly his home, and he sells this. I just go there and work for one month for free, just study. During that month in Texas, he was up before dawn, trimming and rubbing meat, stoking fires, soaking up knowledge. Fast forward a few years, Nepop was living in China, where he helped open a Russian restaurant. 
he was thinking about barbecue. I think why we, why nobody do here barbecue? And Chinese people like meat, so why, why nobody? By here, he means Shenzhen, a city of some 17 million people across the border from Hong Kong. That's where he lives. There are a handful of American barbecue joints around China, but Nepop didn't know of any in Shenzhen. So he and some partners got to work. I make project for this uh, barbecue. We build this by ourselves. For the barbecue pit, Nepop drew the design himself and hired a blacksmith to make it out of a giant segment of pipe. It's almost three feet in diameter and 15 feet long. Nepop also found ways to source American beef and pork, which he says is tastier than Australian or local meat. But he ran into a challenge getting traditional woods for smoking, like apple, hickory, or mesquite. Here is, it's very difficult to find this wood, but a lot of lychee. A lot of lychee. So why not? For those who don't know, lychee is a kind of tropical fruit, about the size of a walnut. They have a leathery red peel, sweet, perfumey white flesh, and they grow on trees all over Shenzhen. And he uh, make very nice smokerines, so, so red and so deep, so cool. And taste is more sweet, little bit sour, similar to apple and oak. We order some food. There's brisket, which was cooked low and slow for 16 hours, turkey, lamb, and pork ribs, which is what I came here for. It's a little different than St. Louis style. It doesn't have the, the sticky sauce on it. It looks, oh, man, look at that. The meat's coming right off the bone. Damn, that's good. Smoky. I'm going to taste the lychee wood. The restaurant is filling up. Across the room, it's Xue Ning's first time eating barbecue here. And he's got good things to say. The brisket is soft and juicy. I'll come back. I don't live far from here. Nepop probably never imagined he would thrive in a country so far from his home by making American barbecue. But when I ask him about his homeland and Russia's invasion, he doesn't want to dwell on it. He says only that he's happy where he is. Before war, I also not go to home. First, because I'm busy here. Second, we have a lot of projects. I don't want to lose any time. Yeah, China is a great place to make money. Someday, he says, he'll go home. For now, he leads us to the bar and pulls out some tiny glasses. In home, uh, my father do vodka, my grandfather do vodka, I do vodka. I also make whiskey, I make rum. <laughs> he pours some vodka that he made, his own taste of home, flavored with local lemons, though. And we lift our glasses for a toast. What should we say? Taste it? John Ruich, NPR News, Shenzhen, China. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Avalara, sales tax automation for businesses of all sizes, designed to simplify sales tax compliance with real-time rates and automatic filing. 
Learn more at avalera.com. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gore Place in Waltham. Shop local at the 6th Annual Handmade for the Holidays Outdoor Craft Fair. More than 30 makers this Saturday. Goreplace.org. And Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I think something that people misunderstand about quiet quitting is a lot of people I talk to have no intention of not hitting their goals. But a younger generation of workers is questioning how much of themselves they should give to their job. It's Monday, September 12th, and this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Ahead, our colleague Elsa Chang explores why so many people are talking about quiet quitting. Also, the quest for a better heart hat. If you look at where do the most brain injuries happen that should be prevented, it's really among workers, construction workers, anybody wearing hard hats. And Congress weighs new funds to protect endangered species, including those seen as less charismatic. There has been this gap in getting enough funding to the species that aren't hunted and fished. That's ahead after the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Russia is facing major challenges, analysts say, as it tries to regroup in the face of a fast and effective Ukrainian counteroffensive in the east. More from NPR's Greg Myrie. In just the last few days, Ukraine's lightning offensive in the east has reclaimed more than 30 towns and villages that took Russia weeks of tough fighting to capture. Military analysts like Dmitry Alperovitch say Russia left itself vulnerable by moving some of its better units out of the east to reinforce positions in southern Ukraine. What this means strategically is that it will make it very, very difficult for the Russians to execute ongoing operations in the Donbass. So strategically, it's a huge victory for Ukraine. He says this was one of Russia's biggest blunders of the war, leaving it with no good options in the near term. Greg Myrie, NPR News. President Biden is in Boston today unveiling a new initiative aimed at further encouraging biotech production and research. Biden signing an executive order today that would launch the initiative and also giving a speech on what he has dubbed his cancer moonshot, moving closer to finding a cure. On Wednesday, the administration is expected to host a summit and announce new investments from several federal agencies. Senior administration officials say the White House wants to support manufacturing biotech products made in the U.S. instead of those produced abroad. Former President Donald Trump, through his lawyers today, is objecting to the two special master candidates put forth by the Justice Department, no reason given. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the respective sides are also at odds over whether an outside arbiter should get to see classified material seized from Mar-a-Lago. Many legal experts say the candidates submitted by the DOJ and Trump's legal team are highly qualified to serve as a special master. Carl Tobias, an attorney at the University of Richmond, agrees, but says it's still going to be difficult for the two sides to reach an agreement. They disagree about who should be appointed. They disagree about uh, who pays for it. 
They disagree about timing. They just fundamentally disagree about everything involving what's happening. The Justice Department is investigating whether Trump illegally removed government documents, some of which marked as highly classified when he left office in 2021. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. A key inflation report due out tomorrow is expected to show price pressures remain. And recent data indicates it's not just costing small businesses money, but customers as well. Survey by investment bank Goldman Sachs finds about 65 percent of small firms have been forced to raise prices. Stocks continued rising today on Wall Street to start a new trading week. All three of the major U.S. stock market indices up nearly 1 percent. The Dow rose 229 points. The Nasdaq was up 154 points. The S&P 500 gained 43 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. More now on President Biden's visit to Boston. You heard about just a few moments ago from NPR. The president's comments on cancer are his second speech of the day in the city. This morning, he spoke at Logan Airport to highlight bipartisan funding approved during his presidency for infrastructure upgrades nationwide. He cited a need in Boston where international travel to and from the city has quadrupled since its international terminal first opened in 1974. It means crowded gates, longer taxi times, airplanes full of passengers just waiting, all of which is causing congestion and flight delays. For travelers passing through, it means misconnections, Lost baggage, long lines. Biden says $62 million in federal funding will allow Terminal E at Logan to add more gates and ticket counters and improve accessibility for people with disabilities. Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey is throwing her support behind the Boston Public Schools in an ongoing fight over exam schools. Healey is asking an appeals judge to reject a claim that race-neutral admissions for Boston Public Schools amount to discrimination. The district eliminated standardized admissions testing requirements for several exam schools in the city last academic year. A group of primarily white and Asian-American parents appealed that decision. They said it was discriminatory. Encore Boston Harbor has a new tool to help patrons gamble responsibly. It launched the Play My Way program today. It's a voluntary budgeting tool available on electronic games such as slot machines at the casino. Mark Van Linden is a director of research and responsible gaming for the Massachusetts Gaming Commission. It's our job to make sure that um, individuals have the information they need so they can make that informed choice about how much they want to spend and um, provide them with information so that they know where they stand. and They can make that decision whether to continue to gamble or when it's time to stop and, and walk away. That's Mark Vanderlinden. Play My Way is also available at Plain Ridge Park Casino in MGM Springfield. Today, hundreds of volunteers marked yesterday's 21st anniversary of the September 11th attacks with a food drive in Boston. The event took place at the Reggie Lewis Track and Field Center in Roxbury. Donated food will support the Greater Boston Community Food Bank. In the forecast, could be in for a couple of strong to severe thunderstorms tomorrow, right about this time, anywhere east of Berkshire County. For tonight, should be pretty dry. Cloudy, though. Temperature's about 68 tomorrow. And then through the day tomorrow, lots of clouds. As we said, maybe some severe thunderstorms in the afternoon, right about 80 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR, 75 degrees now at 507. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Okay, if you have scrolled through TikTok recently, you may have come across this video. I recently learned about this term called quiet quitting. A young man is sitting on a bench at a subway station. There's this peaceful background music as he explains the phrase, quiet quitting. You're still performing your duties, but you're no longer subscribing to the hustle culture mentality that work has to be your life. The reality is it's But, not. you know, there's no one-size-fits-all definition to quiet quitting. If I'm supposed to go above and beyond, then so should my pay. Don't expect something. It's not quiet quitting. It's just resisting wage theft. Critics like entrepreneur Kevin O'Leary see it another way. If you're a quiet quitter, you're a loser. But no matter how you look at it, the concept of quiet quitting is nothing new. Nancy Allard is 67, and she's been working hard since she was 11 years old. Her first job was cleaning her grandma's house. And more recently, she worked as a pharmacy technician before retiring this summer. And she says she was always that person who would stay late or pick up extra shifts or work on holidays. It was important to me to show them that I was serious about my job until later you know, it became clear that it didn't really matter that much. Looking back at her time working, she says she would have prioritized family over work. And Allard says she's glad the younger generation of workers is questioning how much of themselves they should give to their jobs. I have a big high five for them (laughs) because I get it. It took me way too long to figure it out, you know? Younger workers like 19-year-old Arjun Bargava. Bargava is a student at the University of Southern California and also works on campus. And they say that the phrase quiet quitting doesn't accurately reflect what's actually going on. They're still showing up to their job. They're still doing their work. And yet we're associating a word like quitting with an action that's really not quitting. It's doing something that's preventing you from eventually burning out. Serena Bosco works as an executive assistant, and she defines herself as a quiet quitter who remains ambitious. Just because I want to do my job the way it's set up and outlined for me for six months doesn't mean I'm not going to try to get a promotion when I'm ready for it. But what do bosses think about all this? Well, Timothy Stachensky runs a coffee company, and he says, look, it is important for employees to set boundaries at work, but he points out that coworkers may have to pick up extra work if people don't communicate how they're feeling about their work and slack off in an attempt to set boundaries. Are we really giving due consideration to the others that are also being impacted by the decisions that we're making. And I see from my definition of quiet quitting of being that you will do the thing that maybe is the least expected doesn't resonate to what is beneficial both for yourself or your customer or your coworker. In this moment, it is clear that a lot of people are thinking about what they want their work to mean to them and how to not lose themselves in their work. So I talked with two women who have mentored a lot of people throughout their careers. Jeanne Carter is CEO and founder of the HR Queen, and Robin Garrett is CEO of the leadership company Beamably. I wanted to talk to them both about how quiet quitting is playing out for employees and employers. For starters, what are some of the good things that people might actually gain from quiet quitting? 
So this is Jeanne. I believe that it really is pushing a work-life balance. Being able to say, hey, I'm not going to work a 60-hour shift when all I can really give you is 40 hours. And being able to say that and stand by it and be direct, that's a huge movement for employees. And I'm all about employee advocacy, so I think it empowers them and brings back that work-life balance, which is crucial to success. We don't need burnt out employees. They're not productive. This is Robin. I think it's also a good wake up call for leaders. You can sort of see that there's a split between leaders right now. Some of them understand this movement, see where it's coming from and support employees, want to make sure that they're able to set healthy boundaries and that they have good, healthy, productive lives. Some of them are panicking because this sounds so different from what they value that they can't understand it. If that's the case, it's really time to wake up and look in the mirror because we have worked people so hard that now they have reached this point. This didn't happen spontaneously. This happened because a lot of people had bosses that had unrealistic expectations of them. And people tried and tried and tried. And now we've reached a point where, you know, sort of the jig is up. People understand that they're putting in more than they're getting out and that they're not willing to do that anymore. Okay. The jig is up, at least with respect to maybe some work situations. But yes. before we get there, what do you think people lose if they choose to so-called quietly quit? This is Jeanne. When it comes to minorities, specifically people of color, unconscious bias is still a thing in corporate America. You know, we're making strides to work to better it, but it still exists. And so people of color don't necessarily have the same opportunities as our white counterparts. And so it really can put us in a bad position when it comes to our career advancement. Another things that are trending on TikTok is the sense that minorities aren't getting the job, you know, the interviews and their applications aren't going through. And so if they're quiet quitting and then that leads to job hopping, they may not have another opportunity to find another employer that's willing to take them in and take them on and train them and develop them. We're dealing with six million people that are unemployed right now. And so it's a completely different atmosphere when it comes to job seekers. And so I want people of color to be mindful of that. Well, I do think the equity issue is really important, especially with respect to race. I also think there's an equity issue with respect to industry or to kind of work, which leads me into this other idea. And that is there are some professions out there that are I don't know, extensions of the identities of the people who self-select into them. Like in journalism, I think about this a lot. A lot of us chose this career because many of us believe what we do makes an impact. How do you step back from a job that feels like an extension of your identity without feeling like you're shortchanging yourself or shortchanging your purpose? This is Jeanne. I think that's a great point. I mean, I don't think that it can be done. When you and why it's so crucial to, you know, really select a career path or really get, you know, internships and things like that help. So when you start out on your career path, you kind of have a goal. My background is law. And me too. I an associate can't come in and say, you know, hey, I'm not going to get this brief out to this client. That's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I'd rather go sip some margaritas on the beach. That's not going to happen. <laughs> mm -hmm. And to your point, we chose that career. 
You know, I chose to come and I know the hours were going to be a long, uh, a bit longer, but the passion is that I'm helping people. You know, my hours are long, which I try to tell people that are in the corporate arena, okay, you want to come out and you want to be a business owner, but the hours are longer. You know, I'm putting in more work, but I don't mind it because I'm passionate about it. So people really need to get into careers that, like you said, they're passionate about, and then you won't mind going above and beyond. But I guess, is there ultimately a trade-off? Like, if you're someone who supports the idea of quiet quitting, are you basically making a contract with yourself where you are just going to be comfortable with the idea that your career might not advance all that quickly? Do you have to accept that? This is Jeanne. I, I believe so. You may be putting yourself at risk to not reach that top level of, you know, to get to the C level, you know, if that's your desire, you might not get there if you decide to take this route. You know, only so many people are going to reach the C-suite anyway. One of the reasons I think that we're seeing this movement is people are slightly disenfranchised. They've been working and working towards that promotion. And we are seeing a ton of cases where people are doing the job of two people or they've been promised a promotion, but they've been told not yet, not yet. It's coming. You know, corporations have been you know, essentially pulling these tricks and people are disenfranchised with that. They're frustrated. Find an employer, a corporation and a boss that understands what your goals are and your goals are aligned. If that can be aligned, then great. If you need some time though, before you're able to sort of mentally heal and have that energy again, I think that's also okay. Okay. So it sounds like a lot of it is workers exercising the choice to find workplaces that fit the right balance of work versus life, right? But my question also is, can leaders inside workplaces do more to support workers to help them avoid burnout? What do you think, Robin? This is something that I'm very passionate about. If you are seeing this in your organization, it's because there are probably some deep systemic flaws that need to be addressed. Go back to workload. Go back to priorities. Are we actually prioritizing or are we really calling everything a priority and still trying to cram it all in? There's so much you can do as a leader to streamline your business and to make it more employee-friendly, employee-centric. And we have entered that time. So whether you're on board with that or not, it has already happened. And I'll say employees can tell if you're serious about it. They can smell artificial caring a mile away. <laughs> you have to care. If you're just clinging on to, well, these are my skills, this is my status, you will listen to me, you're going to find a lot of struggle in the immediate future. That was Robin Garrett and Janae Carter. Robin Garrett is CEO of the leadership company Beamably, and Janae Carter is CEO and founder of the HR Queen. Thank you both so much for being here with us. Thank you. It's been great to chat with you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And it's All Things Considered from NPR News. A recent campaign succeeded in diminishing the reach of a website that is notorious for harassing people who are transgender and autistic. That story's just ahead. Stocks gained ground for the fourth straight session. The Dow rose nearly three quarters of a percent, 230 points, to close at 32,381. S&P gained more than one percent to finish up at 4110. 
The Nasdaq pulled in more than one and a quarter percent to end the day at 12,266. Marketplace has details coming up at 6.30. It's now 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it, and thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. St. Elizabeth's Medical Center in Brighton has a new president. Dr. Maricela Marrero is the first woman of color to serve in the post. Today's her first day. She previously served as president of Good Samaritan Medical Center in Brockton. St. Elizabeth's is the flagship hospital in the state for the Texas-based Stewart Healthcare. Coming to WBR City Space Thursday, September 29th at 7 o'clock, a performance from Alston-based band Lady Pills as part of the Sound On concert series. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. Look for more clouds around tonight. Temperatures about 68 degrees. Then for tomorrow, plenty of clouds. Could have some severe afternoon thunderstorms with highs just about 80. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, a privacy company committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer private search and tracker blocking with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. This month, a forum considered to be one of the most toxic places on the Internet became harder to access. For nearly a decade, the site called Kiwi Farms has been a place where users target autistic and transgender people to harass them. At least three suicides have been linked to this harassment. But a recent campaign may provide an example of how to counter these kinds of sites successfully. NPR's domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef has been following this. Hey, Odette. Hey, Juana. So tell us about where this campaign started to take this site down. Well, it started with one of the people who's been targeted on the site this year. Um, She's a Canadian transgender activist named Clara Sorrenti. And she hosts a popular news live stream on the platform Twitch. Within the last month or so, she has been swatted twice. What that means is police responded to false calls that she was about to commit an act of violence. Here's how she described it to me. I woke up to the SWAT team at my door pointing an assault rifle at me. I was arrested. I had all of my computers seized. I was in custody for 11 hours. So when I spoke with her, she was kind of in this real-time scenario of fleeing locations repeatedly as her stalkers continued to identify where she was. The common denominator between these two instances is both of those addresses were posted on the Kiwi Farms forum. So Sorrenti is really the one that launched the campaign against Kiwi Farms. Okay, now, Dad, help us understand how does this website, how does Kiwi Farms work? Well, Kiwi Farms is an offshoot of another site you may have heard of, Wana, 8chan, uh, where users traffic in conspiracy theories and hate. 
But what distinguishes Kiwi Farms is its users have been known to obsessively stalk people, often trans or neurodivergent people. They would hunt down anything they could find out about the person and then post it to the site. So information like the person's address, pictures of their home, phone numbers, and they would do the same for that person's family members and friends. And as you can imagine, this was quite scary for their targets. Yeah, it sounds like it. So Odette, how did Clara Sorrenti go about trying to take Kiwi Farms down? So this is where the story gets really interesting. Sorrenti did not go after Kiwi Farms directly. Instead, she focused on the tech companies that support the Kiwi Farms website. These are sometimes called internet infrastructure companies. And she started with a big one called Cloudflare. Cloudflare protects websites from cyber attacks, and about 20% of websites across the world sit behind its network. Cloudflare is known for tolerating customers that other similar tech companies have dropped. Um, These have included neo-Nazi sites and also 8chan. Early into Sorrenti's campaign, Cloudflare posted on its blog that even if they deem one of their customers' websites to be, quote, reprehensible, it wasn't grounds to cut off service. That's why it was so remarkable when the company did a 180 just days later and did block Kiwi Farms. What we saw was the volume of threats targeting people who were pressuring the site just got increasingly specific. Uh, So we really thought that those were threats that presented an an imminent risk to human life. That's Cloudflare's head of public policy, Alyssa Starzak. She wouldn't detail the exact illegal activity that triggered Cloudflare's block. But the large tech company has been clear. This was an extraordinary decision and not one that it intends to repeat, even if the company comes under pressure again for protecting other sites linked to real-world violence. Starzak says safety is law enforcement's job. If someone is coming under a coordinated threat of physical violence from online behavior, don't you think there should be mechanisms to protect them other than asking a company to remove security services? Liz Fong-Jones would say yes. There should be every mechanism to protect victims of online stalking. But when Fong Jones became a target of the Kiwi Farms mob first in 2017, she found nobody would take her seriously, not the tech companies she contacted and not local law enforcement. People thought that, you know, oh, you know, if people are saying bad things about you on the Internet, you know, again, right, like just log off or, you know, you harden up or like, why is this a problem? Fong Jones is a transgender activist and software developer who worked in tandem with Sorrenti on this campaign. She says big tech companies like Cloudflare ignore the role they play in the spread of violence and hate. First, they make operating the sites relatively cheap and they make visiting those sites quick and broadly accessible. Fong Jones rejects the claim that if big tech cuts off these sites, it amounts to censorship on the internet, because that ignores the real power imbalance. These sites allow countless users from across the globe to come together in violent incitement against people who are often already marginalized and vulnerable. The way that they get people to the point that they feel that suicide is their only way out is by getting people to the point where they have no support network, where they're so cut off from anyone else because they know that anyone that they get close to is going to get targeted. And it's at that point that they then get messages from Kiwi Forms members encouraging them to kill themselves and being told that suicide is the only way out. 
Odette, this is clearly incredibly disturbing, but tell us, how does this tie into what you cover, domestic extremism? Well, Rita Katz has been monitoring extremist movements online for more than 20 years, and she puts Kiwi Farms in the same constellation as other platforms like 4chan and 8chan, Gab and Incel. These are not just hate sites, as Cloudflare uh, is trying to pretend them to be, but they are terrorist factories. Terrorist factories. Katz says these inspire and enable violence. And she points to mass shootings at a Pittsburgh synagogue, at two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, at a Walmart in El Paso, and the recent attempted attack at an FBI field office in Cincinnati. You know, these are places people have talked about violence that they would commit and where that violence has been celebrated. So she thinks disrupting access to these sites can immediately disrupt environments that are known to cause real world violence. But I will know that it also can lead to a game of whack-a-mole. How do you mean? So when Cloudflare blocked Kiwi Farms, the site briefly turned to a tech company in Russia that then dropped them. So now it's relegated to what some people call the dark web. Rita Katz says all this makes the site less reliable and its reach narrower. And you know, ultimately Katz and Liz Fong Jones are glad that Cloudflare arrived at the decision that it did, but they say it came at too high of a cost, especially for transgender people. Trans people should not be the canary in the coal mine, right? Like, we shouldn't be out here taking bomb threats um, for someone to decide to act. You know, this will happen again, maybe with Cloudflare, maybe another company. The question, Juana, is how much this story will make a difference. Odette, thank you so much. My pleasure. That's NPR's Odette Youssef. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. This is NPR News. Coming up on All Things Considered, building a better hard hat. Hazy, humid this evening, clouds thickening overnight tonight should make it to about overnight 68 degrees. Then for tomorrow, around 80 degrees, clouds staying around the area could get hit with some severe thunderstorms, especially inland tomorrow afternoon. Skies should clear early tomorrow night, then pave the way for a sunny and dry day on Wednesday. It's 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. This year, Congress actually came up with a solution to help the U.S. Postal Service. A bipartisan bill passed. That's the biggest financial reform of the post office in 20 years. So what's been fixed? What this did is it fixed the balance sheet, but the Postal Service Reform Act amounts to being a bailout without getting any underlying structural reforms. That's On Point, tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Speaking at Boston's International Airport this afternoon, President Biden touted a major overhaul for the nearly 50-year-old facility, Thanks to money from last year's bipartisan infrastructure bill, 
he signed into law. It's going to increase accessibility by adding ramps, rails, elevators, wheelchair-accessible shuttles and buses. A new HVA system, electric-powered gates are going to make it more energy efficient. Less idling time for planes will mean fewer emissions. We're creating a modern terminal worthy of America's city on the hill. Biden called it the largest federal investment in airports ever, with $25 billion to modify airports around the country. Biden is also scheduled to speak at a fundraiser for the Democratic National Committee. Starting today, Russian citizens seeking a tourist visa to any country in the European Union will have to pay more than double the previous fee and wait longer for processing. As Terry Schultz reports, the EU's suspension of visa privileges for Russians is linked to the invasion of Ukraine. The suspension of what's called the Visa Facilitation Agreement means Russian applicants for a visa to an EU country will have to pay 80 euros, about $80, up from 35 euros. They'll have to provide more documents, wait longer, and have more restrictions on multiple entry visas. Czech Interior Minister Vít Rakušan, whose country is the EU's current rotating president, says the move demonstrates the EU's unwavering commitment to Ukraine and its people. The EU as a whole has refused to more severely restrict issuing visas to Russians. So a week from today, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania and Poland will individually close their borders to Russian citizens, with a few exceptions, including dissidents and journalists. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street. The Dow gained 229 points, up nearly three-quarters of a percent. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. More now on President Biden's visit to Boston today. He just wrapped up his second speech of the day and announced that a leader at a Massachusetts-based biotech company will oversee a key piece of his cancer moonshot project. Renee Wegerson of Ginkgo Bioworks will serve as the first director of the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health. It's known as ARPA-H and has the job of researching and preventing diseases, including cancer. Biden spoke about the initiative at the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library in Dorchester this afternoon on the 60th anniversary of Kennedy's original moonshot speech. I predict ARPA-H will emerge as a new and exciting member of America's biomedical ecosystem. Biden first launched the Cancer Moonshot Project when he was Barack Obama's vice president. Today, he said he'll also be taking executive action to further promote and support American biomedical manufacturing. Boston police say returning college students need to be wary of drinks spiked with drugs. Police released a public warning today saying the department is aware of numerous reports of people who say they have unknowingly ingested drugs that were slipped into drinks at local bars. If you believe you've been a victim of drink spiking, you can report the incident by calling 911 or any district police station. A boil water order is in effect in Mansfield. The town's drinking water tested positive for E. coli bacteria last week. The town is giving out free bottled water to residents until 7 o'clock this evening at the Department of Public Works. It'll do the same for the next two afternoons. Gas prices in Massachusetts are down from last week. The average cost for a gallon of regular unleaded is now $3.80. That's according to AAA. The price is about 12 cents lower than last week. It's still nearly 10 cents higher than the national average. Gas prices have been falling for three straight months. It's 534. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Empire Loan, with eight locations in New England, proudly recognizing the Lenny Zakem Fund, a public nonprofit charitable organization who's awarded over $12 million in grants to over 400 Massachusetts grassroots organizations committed to advancing social, economic, and racial justice. The Lenny should have clouds on the increase this evening, temperatures dipping only to the upper 60s overnight tonight. Tomorrow could make it to 80, some thunderstorms letting loose in the afternoon. The National Weather Service says some of them could be pretty heavy, especially inland. Should dry up for the second half of the week, though. Sunny on Wednesday, still about 80 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. More than 30 million workers in the U.S. wear a hard hat, a safety helmet, to prevent head injuries. Yet most of these helmets offer little protection against the sort of impacts likely to cause a concussion. NPR's John Hamilton reports on efforts to develop a better hard hat. Concussions, or mild traumatic brain injuries, get a lot of attention when they happen on a football field, but these injuries are far more numerous in another setting. Michael Botlang directs the Legacy Biomechanics Lab in Portland, Oregon. If you look at where do the most brain injuries happen that should be prevented, it's really among workers, construction workers, anybody wearing hard hats. About a quarter of all concussions in adults occur on the job. And Botlang says one reason is that hard hats, unlike football helmets, haven't changed much. Unfortunately, today's most frequently used hard hats look identical to the ones from the 60s. There's a plastic outer shell with an inner suspension system made from webbing. Some models also include foam padding on the sides and a chin strap. This design does a fine job protecting the brain from a direct hit, say a hammer dropped by a worker two stories up. But hard hats aren't so good when the impact comes at an angle. Botlang says that's because the helmet and the head inside it turns violently. Think of a boxer, get knocked in the chin, makes the head spin, and you drop like a fly. The human brain is readily injured by a rotational force. The brain is a bit like an egg yolk, a soft capsule surrounded by liquid inside a hard shell. You can shake an egg forcefully without disrupting the contents. But if you spin one hard enough, the yolk inside will rupture. Dr. Steve Mady, an orthopedic surgeon in Portland, says most hard hats and helmets act like an eggshell. They do a job at reducing force, so they serve a purpose. But if they're not optimized to decrease the spin, they're not optimized to prevent injury. So Mady and Botling founded a company called WaveCell to make better helmets. Their inspiration came from observing what happens to a ball when it strikes the ground at an angle. Mady says ordinarily, the ball does more than just bounce. It'll hit the ground, it'll have friction, and it'll create spin. Unless the ground is made of something special. If you throw a ball into a sand pit, right, the sand gives underneath, right? It doesn't impart spin to the ball. So the company developed a helmet liner made from a special plastic honeycomb designed to act like sand. 
The honeycomb structure is a very light, breathable material that is not only good at absorbing that linear force, but also breaks that spin the way sand would. The liner can be found in several big brand sports helmets. And now Wavecell is offering its own line of hard hats. In both sports helmets and hard hats, the company faces competition from the Swedish firm MIPS. Studies show MIPS technology also reduces spin, but not as well. A Wavecell hard hat costs $189, several times the price of a standard helmet. And it's not clear whether any sort of anti-spin technology will become standard on job sites. Dr. Brandon Luckywald, a neurosurgeon at the University of Florida, says he has yet to see much change. Even the construction workers I saw biking home today were wearing hard hats that are very similar to what I saw 10, 15 years ago. Luckywald says that's one reason he's still treating patients who get a concussion despite wearing a hard hat. So he'd like to see more workers in helmets that help reduce the speed at which the head spins in an impact. By having this slowing process from these helmets, it's keeping the brain more stationary, and so that has a lot of potential benefit. Including keeping workers out of the hospital and on the job. John Hamilton, NPR News. Bald eagles have soared back from the brink. Grizzly bears are on the rebound. But thousands of less charismatic species, the kinds you might not see on a poster or a bumper sticker, are threatened with extinction. NPR's Laura Benshoff reports on a federal bill that would spend more to protect U.S. wildlife. In a stream near Binghamton, New York, a half dozen people in waders and snorkel gear are trying to catch a kind of giant salamander called the Eastern Hellbender. It's not clear how they got that name, but one theory is because they're kind of funny looking. Biologist Michelle Herman disagrees. They're just so unique among all other salamanders in North America. Yeah, I find them pretty charismatic. Hellbenders are brown with flat heads and wide tails. They can grow to be more than two feet long and live under giant rocks in the stream bed. As a part of her master's thesis, Herman helped repopulate them in this area, and she's back to give them their annual health checkup. At a folding table set up by the banks, she takes some measurements, checks them out. Toes are all good. Tail's good. And swabs each one carefully for a kind of invasive fungus. Well, the first one uh, snapped at me when I did the chin rub. It's very feisty. People like Herman, who are passionate about a species, can make a difference. But conservation is expensive and a lot of work. Her collaborator and fellow hellbender enthusiast, Peter Patokas, has tried crowdfunding. He inspired a group of high school students who lobbied to get the animal named the state amphibian of Pennsylvania. They borrowed my hellbender costume, which is really cool. It took two years, but they did it. So it was exciting. The problem was in terms of it bringing more attention in terms of funding, is that that never really happened. There's not enough funding to go around. For every species saved from the brink of extinction, there are thousands of others like this one, teetering closer to the edge. Mark Humpert is with the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. Nationally, there's 12,000 different species that are considered species of greatest conservation need. But federal funding only provides about 5% of what's needed to help all those species. Since the 1930s, the U.S. has taxed hunting licenses, as well as guns, ammo, and other equipment to pay for conservation. Mike Leahy with the National Wildlife Federation says that money tends to help the species that hunters and anglers care about, like deer and elk. There has been this gap in getting enough funding to the species that aren't hunted and fished 
a bill that passed the House of Representatives this summer and which has bipartisan support in the Senate would change that. The Recovering America's Wildlife Act calls for spending $1.3 billion a year, a huge increase over existing funding. But it's unclear how the measure would be paid for and if it will come up for a vote this session. But Leahy says if it does, it would also shift the focus towards species that don't get a ton of support right now. Recovering America's Wild Effect brings funding to all wildlife. There is this kind of unheralded crisis in wildlife, and it's a little less well-known because it tends to be the less charismatic species. Many conservationists talk about this crisis like flying a plane while slowly removing each bolt, or a game of Jenga. Each species lost weakens whole ecosystems. But Peter Patokas, the hellbender scientist, sees it differently. If we think about all the unique species on the planet that we go to see in the zoo, we go there to see tigers and lions and elephants and giant tortoises and rare birds. And I think that's the real value of conserving a really rare and unique species, is to have it there for the future for everybody else to enjoy. He says we should care about wildlife all the time, not just when it's in danger. Laura Benshoff, NPR News, Philadelphia. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Across the country, employers are still struggling to fill certain jobs. That is especially true for dentists trying to hire hygienists and other support staff. Meanwhile, many patients are just now returning to the dentist after a long pandemic break, and they're finding it tough to schedule an appointment. Craig Lamolt of Member Station GBH reports. It's going to feel a little pressure here. Dr. Tina Wong scrapes the plaque from a patient's teeth. And then, after a rinse, it's time to polish. Usually, a dental hygienist does the cleanings here. But a full-time hygienist in this office moved away in January. And Wong says she hasn't been able to fully staff back up since then. So what's been happening is the doctors, myself included, have been doing the cleanings just to be able to take care of everybody. And that means less time for her and the other dentists in her practice to see other patients. Wong says they've been posting the position on job sites and asking colleagues, hygienists, schools, and vendors if they know anyone qualified who's looking for a job. She describes the search as emotional. It's emotional because my team that's here um, are facing challenges and struggles. And it's a a day-to-day grind for them. And I want to help them. A couple of months ago, Wong says she was thrilled to finally hire a new hygienist. But... The next day, she said she got another good offer. So it was between the two of us, and she took another job. It's a competitive market right now. A poll last month by the American Dental Association shows nearly 40% of dentists are trying to recruit hygienists. Of those, 95% say it's been extremely or very difficult to hire someone. In the 20 largest U.S. cities, the ADA's polling says only half of hygienist positions are reported as filled. We just hear over and over again, What can we do to get more dental hygienists? That's Rachel Morrissey, a senior research analyst at the American Dental Association. Their monthly poll of private dental practices shows dental assistants are in high demand, too. And Morrissey says dentists are trying to sweeten the pot to attract candidates. More than 80% of dentists that are recruiting dental hygienists are raising salaries. 
They're also offering more flexible working hours. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reports the average dental hygienist's salary was just under $78,000 last year, or more than $37 an hour. Morrissey was a co-author of a study last year that estimated 8% of dental hygienists left the workforce in 2020. A year later, some had returned. But hygienist Sarah Crow, who's the president of the Massachusetts Dental Hygienists Association, says many of her older colleagues aren't coming back. If there was a question in your mind pre-pandemic, whether or not you were ready to retire or you were thinking about, you know, just not practicing clinically anymore, the pandemic made up your mind. And so there were a lot of hygienists in that boat. Crow says the pandemic pushed people out of the field for all kinds of reasons, including childcare challenges and personal health concerns in a job that requires close contact. But Dr. Joanne Gorenlian of the American Dental Hygienists Association says even before the pandemic, hygienists reported growing dissatisfaction. There was concern about lack of respect in their workplace setting. They were having to clock out if a patient canceled their appointment. They felt that they just weren't appreciated. And there were some that were thinking maybe it was time for them to leave. But now, for many dental hygienists and assistants, staffing shortages could bring greater appreciation from their employers and a boost in pay and benefits to go along with that. For NPR News, I'm Craig Lamolt in Boston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on All Things Considered, actress and model Brooke Shields talks about getting older in the public eye. Your mobile phone is a radio on the go. Listen on the WBR mobile app wherever you are and stay informed about all the day's news. This is 90.9 WBUR. There's a way in which Venus and Serena, their resistance to them was the same resistance that has always been true for black people in this country. There's no going back. You can try if you want to, but we're still going to move forward no matter what. And that always feels so much bigger with these two than tennis for me. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CB Team in Lexington, using exposure therapy to help all ages learn to overcome OCD and anxiety disorders. More at cbteam.org. Tomorrow on All Things Considered, Jeff Muldor gives quintessential American jazz, folk, and blues the European chamber music treatment. That's tomorrow from 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. In the forecast, humid this evening with clouds thickening overnight tonight, 68 degrees. Tomorrow should make it to about 80 clouds sticking around. Chance will get hit with some severe thunderstorms, especially inland tomorrow afternoon. This is 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Our next guest has been in showbiz since she was 11 months old. 11 
months. That is when Brooke Shields took her first turn before the cameras as the face of Ivory Soap. More ads followed, then movie deals, TV, stage, and almost always documenting her every move, paparazzi. Shields grew up in the public eye, and now she is aging in the public eye, and she wants to talk about it, as she did with us this past spring. At the top of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s list, the idea that women in their 50s are not represented in lots of places, including advertising. Why are we forgotten? And we're forgotten just in this middle chunk because there's 20s and then there are people, you know, say more in the more aged, aged or geriatric world, you know, and it's like you go from sexy to depends. And there's this whole margin in the middle that is actually quite a few decades in the middle there. Yeah, quite a few decades in the middle that are vibrant. I always say I don't like to talk about it as aging as much as vitality. And Brooke Shields is on a mission to highlight the vitality of women over 50. She started an online community, signed with the winemaker Claude Dubois to rebrand Chardonnay, and the one-time face and body of Calvin Klein jeans is doing ads for Jordache. I read that you told them, do not even think about retouching this. I want people to see my body and the way it looks as I'm 56. Why? Um, A, because I worked really hard to get to that picture ready place. And you know what? Sure. It's, it's you look at yourself with a filter into this and that or whatever. And you're like, oh, okay. Then you look in the mirror and you're like, oh, okay. Not the same. <laughs> yeah. Don't look the same. But, but what am I going to do? You know, it was brilliant lighting. It was an amazing photographer, hair and makeup and wardrobe. Everybody was on top of their game. So I was very secure within what was going to be represented. What I didn't want was to be made thinner. Um, I did lose weight, you know, hit it a bit harder. I worked every day. You know, I had to work at 5 a.m. because that was the only time that I could get Um, this training session. And I worked really hard for it. You know, I don't look skin and bones. I, I just didn't want to be on, I didn't want to be on dishonest with how much work I put in to doing it and saying, why can't I be sexy at this age? Well, I, in the interest of full honesty, will say I, you, you look gorgeous in this ad. I also was like, you're, you're Brooke Shields. You're more gorgeous than the rest of us combined, whether you were getting up and working out at 5 a.m. or not. And even you had to do that. I mean, that's, that's the reality. And I wondered, you know, I, I could work out at 5 a.m. every day for the rest of my life. I'm not going to look like you do in Jordache jeans. Do you worry at all about that, about the like women, whatever age we are in the unrealistic body expectations that get put out there. Listen, I, I, it is all true. You know, I, I can't apologize for what I look like, but I know that I've worked hard at it and I've made sure that I wasn't just that. And it's about, it's about the dialogue that you have with your children, with people. It's about aligning with companies that do believe in body inclusivity. I'm one version of, of that. I can say that this is my age, you know, this is my age and this is where I am today. I'm having my own, I have to find my own pride in my own shape and it looks different now than it did. Yeah. You know, when I was, everything was all up higher. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, there's a special resonance in talking to you, Brooke Shields, about doing a, a jeans ad because you're, of course, starred in one of the most famous jeans ads ever, the Calvin Klein ad mm-hmm. from 1980. 
um, which was controversial then because you were so young. It would be more controversial today. Um, I wondered as I watched you, you know, in this new, very sexy ad. I mean, you're wearing jeans and nothing else, right? You're barefoot. It's you're topless. It's shot from behind. Um, how has your understanding of that, of of wanting to be in an ad where you are, where it is all about the sex appeal, how has that changed over what, 42 years? I think it's probably the first time I've ever felt the sex appeal. Hmm. You know, you don't, you can't really feel it at 15. It was all about doing a really good job. When I did it, I did not own the sexuality of it in the same way that I understand it and do now. And it's taken me a lot longer. I have a very fraught, you know, historical relationship with sexuality and virginity and, uh, uh, you know, all of that for decades. Now I understand it differently. So it's I'm much more inclined to do something that is more overtly sexual that I understand. And own it. I, yeah. I own it now. It's mine, you know. How do you think about the line? Is there a line? I think about this all the time between wanting to look good and wanting to look young because it's so ingrained that they're the same thing. Ooh, that's hard. Yeah. That is a that's hard because you know, it's like, it's one thing to say, oh, you know, these wrinkles are from laughter. And everybody's like, oh, that's good. You know, okay. Yeah. But they weren't there then. And I look at my little baby girl's faces and they are just flawless. It's like, I gaze at them and then I think, oh, wait a minute. I was once that I didn't even know it. So then I look at myself and I think, okay, no, I don't look like I did in my twenties and, and my skin is looser. My butt's lower, my love handles. And you know what I mean? It's like, you yeah. look at all those and you take them apart. And then you look at these sort of nubile bodies that are just emerging into these incredible women. And you're just like, oh my God, I have to be careful not to compare myself. And you know, the thing for me that's more important than the look of it is I'm partially broken down. Like my knees are bad you know, weight loss is more difficult. Yeah, I can't drink in the same way that I used to, even though I love it as much as I mean, actually more than I ever did. Those are the kind of things that I that I'm fighting more than just what I look like in the mirror. What do you want women to hear from watching you feeling conflicted and wrestling with all of this still uh, at this at this point at 56 and still living your life so much in the public eye? is I don't think there's any shame. There's no shame in being older, in getting older. There's a sense of pride, I think, that comes with it. But I don't want to wait for that pride to have to look like ancient wisdom. You know, I'm not stopping a thing I love doing. Yes, I'm limited in a lot of the physical activity, but I'm still going, I'm still taking on new jobs. There is still more to come. And this is all a part of it. So I want that message to be out there because I want, especially women over a certain age in their 50s to feel like they are at a new beginning. You know, just because their ovaries are not producing babies anymore, are they supposedly not as important or not as valuable? I don't believe so. That was actress, author, entrepreneur, Brooke Shields speaking with me earlier this year. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from USPS, serving every address in the country, more than 160 million nationwide. USPS, delivering for America. Learn more at usps.com delivering. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involves the risk of loss. And from Subaru, featuring the 2023 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. This is WBUR. Still some sunshine out there. Clouds collecting tonight, about 68 for a low overnight. Tomorrow should make it to 80 with clouds sticking around. There's a chance we'll get hit with some severe thunderstorms, especially inland tomorrow afternoon. 75 degrees now at 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden comes to Boston for two major announcements. He spoke at Logan Airport about modernizing the nation's aging airports. Logan will get $62 million to improve International Terminal E. He then moved on to George Chester's JFK Library to talk about the cancer moonshot. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Also coming up, Ukraine's military is advancing swiftly in some key portions of the country and has recaptured territory from Russia. What this means strategically is that it will make it very, very difficult for the Russians to execute ongoing operations in the Donbass. So strategically, it's a huge victory for Ukraine. The stunning counteroffensive and Ukrainians' reaction to it coming up. And since its founding in 975 AD, the Regensburg Cathedral Boys Choir has only admitted boys until today. It's 6.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. For the second day in a row, shelling by Russian forces has knocked out power and water across Kharkiv, Ukraine's second largest city. As NPR's Ashley Westerman explains, the city's mayor says the shelling is in retaliation for recent gains by Ukrainian armed forces. Local officials say the shelling targeted a densely populated residential area in Kharkiv, killing at least one person and injuring six. It also knocked out water and electricity across some of the city again, just hours after much of it had been restored, after Russian forces on Sunday targeted critical infrastructure in central and eastern Ukraine. 
Ihor Terekhov, the mayor of Kharkiv, told Ukrainian media that the strikes were retaliatory. With such anger and hatred, the Russian aggressors have began to avenge their military failures in Kharkiv region, he said. Ukraine has made significant gains in territory in the east after launching a surprise counteroffensive just last week. Ashley Westerman, NPR News, Kharkiv. Around 15,000 nurses at more than a dozen Minnesota hospitals are on strike today. Minnesota Public Radio's Tim Nelson reports many are walking picket lines outside. Mary Turner is the president of the Nurses Union, which calls the three-day walkout among the biggest nurses' strikes in the country. Turner says they're calling attention to their demands on hospitals for higher wages and more input on scheduling and staffing. Their response back is... Never will we let the nurses um, control the staffing grids. Never will we let the nurses have a say in our staffing on our floor. Well, that means they're telling us that we will not be allowed to do the job the way we are trained to do. Hospital officials call the wage demands unaffordable. For NPR News, I'm Tim Nelson in St. Paul. The first year of the pandemic led to a reversal in hard-won progress in the fight against HIV, tuberculosis, and malaria, but a new report is detailing a partial rebound in 2021. Here's NPR's Ari Daniel. The Global Fund invests $4 billion annually to combat HIV, tuberculosis, and malaria. According to the World Health Organization, these are largely diseases of poverty that account for more than 2.5 million deaths every year. The pandemic pulled medical practitioners and resources away from combating these diseases. But last year, the Global Fund reports it helped to counter those losses by, for instance, providing more access to vaccines and bed nets to fight malaria. Since it started in 2002, the Global Fund estimates it saved some 50 million lives, and now they're hoping to raise another 18 billion to continue their work over the next few years. Ari Daniel, NPR News. The Dow is up 229 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. At the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library today, President Biden outlined his plans to advance research to fight cancer. Biden calls his cancer project a moonshot in reference to Kennedy's initiative launched 60 years ago today that ultimately put a man on the moon. Joe Biden was the head of Barack Obama's cancer moonshot. President Biden says federal investments in biotechnology can save lives. The goal is to cut cancer death rates by at least 50 percent, at least 50 percent in the next 25 years. To turn more cancers from death sentences into chronic diseases people can live with. Biden announced new steps in the effort today, including an executive order to support American biomanufacturing and a leadership appointment for a new federal agency to research and prevent diseases. Biden's son, Beau, died of brain cancer in 2015. Boston police are investigating the stabbing of a student inside a city high school this morning. Police say the 18-year-old male was attacked inside Jeremiah Burke High School in Dorchester about 11 a.m. Police say the victim was stabbed in the shoulder, suffered non-life-threatening injuries, and was taken to a hospital. The suspect fled the scene by the time police arrived. Graduate students at Boston University are relaunching their campaign for a union. A similar effort in 2016 stalled. Since then, student workers have joined unions at Harvard, MIT, and Tufts. And at BU, many say they are still struggling to live near campus. WBR's Max Larkin has more. 
Student life often involves a little thrift, but Alex Lyons says too many graduate students in Boston are pushed to extreme economies. Lyon is a fifth-year graduate student in biology at BU and goes without pay in the summer. So I'll skip meals. I will neglect to get medical care and will try to self-treat. I'll walk 40-ish minutes to an hour to campus rather than take the tea. Organizers say they're hoping a union can get more students on better paid and year-round stipends. Boston University declined to comment on an ongoing labor matter. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Massachusetts is home to some of the best higher education in the United States. That's according to U.S. News, which released its annual college rankings today. The publication says Williams and Amherst Colleges are the two best liberal arts colleges in the country in that order. It ranks MIT and Harvard, respectively, as America's second and third best major universities. In the forecast, pretty warm out there right now. Tonight, you may need to kick off the blanket. Lows about 68. Tomorrow should be cloudy, wet, and warm, up around 80 degrees. 75 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. rwjf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In a striking development over the weekend, Ukrainian forces broke through Russia's front lines in the northeast. Ukrainian officials now claim they are in charge of towns held for months by Russia. Videos appearing to show recently liberated Ukrainians welcoming soldiers are circulating on social media. Like this one, posted to Twitter by Ukrainian human rights lawyer Oleksandra Mitvichu. In the video, three old women embrace Ukrainian soldiers, weeping and kissing them on the cheek. The women offer food to the soldiers, who decline to take it, and tell the women to stay inside. The shelling isn't quite over. In Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, Vitalia Sverge waited anxiously throughout the weekend for updates. She and her husband are from Kharkiv, but they were displaced by the war. Yeah, we're following the news. Uh, we check the map uh, every 30 minutes. Sverge told NPR the gains made against Russia have improved her morale, and she expressed pride in her country's troops. Now everyone knows what is Ukrainian army. Everything will be Ukraine. As we've just heard, Ukrainians are closely following this military offensive. But how did Ukraine carry out this lightning operation after two months of a virtual stalemate in the war? To hear how Ukraine pulled it off, we're joined by NPR's national security correspondent, Greg Myrie. Hey, Greg. Hi, Juana. So before we break this down, can you tell us where the Ukrainian offensive stands right now? Well, it's still ongoing. The Ukrainians have taken around two dozen towns and villages in these past few days. It's spread over a thousand square miles 
themselves. Now, Russia had to fight long and hard for weeks and weeks to take over these towns, and now it's lost them in days without really putting up a fight. And the significance is that it will be much, much harder for Russia to resupply its forces in the east, which has been the main battleground. And one important, important town in particular we want to highlight, it's called Izum. It's this road and railway hub. Russian troops and vehicles and supplies all flowed through this town for months. Now it's in Ukrainian hands. Okay, Greg, now until just a few days ago, we were talking about a Ukrainian offensive in the south of the country. And this big breakthrough in the east seemed to frankly come out of nowhere. How did this happen? Yeah, Ukraine was publicly talking about an offensive in the south uh, and seemed to be taking away their own element of surprise. The Russians believed them. They began moving some of their best Russian troops from the east to the south to reinforce positions there. Uh, Ukraine did, in fact, launch an offensive in the south a couple weeks ago. But the bigger Ukrainian offensive is taking place exactly where these Russian troops pulled out in the east. Military analyst Dmitry Alperovich says this is a major development. This pullback was one of the biggest blunders of the war thus far. It presented an incredible opportunity for the Ukrainians to, to move forward and capture these critical supply railroad junctures. And that uh, presents really uh, significant problems for the Russians. And Greg, what role has U.S. assistance played in this offensive? Well, it's been very significant, at least in terms of laying the groundwork for this offensive. This has been an artillery war, and the U.S. keeps providing longer range and more powerful artillery weapons, particularly these HIMARS, which allows Ukraine to fire accurately for up to 50 miles. This is the kind of capability Ukraine simply didn't have at the beginning of the war. And now on the intelligence front, we don't know the specifics, neither side is talking about it. But we do know intelligence sharing between the Ukrainians and the Americans has been going on throughout the war. We know they're in contact on a daily basis. And given this background, it's it's very reasonable to assume the U.S. and Ukrainians are surely comparing notes about the Russian military and where they see it as most vulnerable. And what about Russia? How is Russia responding? Well, Russia keeps trying to present this as some sort of orderly pullback, but the evidence to the contrary is just absolutely overwhelming. The Russians abandon this large quantities of military equipment. It's spawning all these jokes that Russia has become Ukraine's largest military supplier. And on the ground, Russia hasn't countered the Ukraine advance, but it has fired dozens of missiles to take out electrical power stations. And I think we haven't seen how Russia is going to respond in the east and one region where it had made some progress. Again, here's Dmitry Alperovich. What this means strategically is that it will make it very, very difficult for the Russians to execute ongoing operations. So strategically, it's a huge victory for Ukraine. So to your mind, is it fair to call this a turning point in the war? You know, probably a little early to say that definitively, but it certainly could be. I mean, there was this real question about whether Ukraine could reverse Russian gains. And now we have a clear answer. Yes, they can. Uh, We could also say this is really the third major battlefield development of the war. First, the Russians tried to seize the capital, Kiev, at the very start, but they were stopped and had to retreat. And then second, Russia had this massive grinding push to take territory in the east in the spring and the summer. And now Ukraine's lightning advance uh, has reclaimed a big chunk of this territory. All right, Greg, thanks so much. My pleasure. That was NPR's Greg Myrie.
One week from today, monarchs, presidents, and prime ministers from around the world will converge on Westminster Abbey in London for the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. Outside the Abbey, they are expecting huge crowds who want to pay their respects. We're already seeing that on streets in Scotland, where people are hoping for a glimpse of the hearse. Many more are expected in London, where the Queen lies in state later this week. Will you put those crowds and the funeral guest list packed with dignitaries together, and you have got a formidable challenge for security officials. I want to bring in someone with a sense of that challenge. Nick Aldworth is former UK National Coordinator for Counterterrorism. Nick Aldworth, welcome. Hello. Hi. I'm trying to think of what must be the most recent precedent that, if anything, might give something resembling a roadmap. And I was thinking of 25 years ago on the funeral of Princess Diana and all the people who descended on London um, in the days uh, leading up to that. Is that the closest precedent? I think in terms of um, the volumes of people uh, arriving, I think we are on a par with Diana. The thing that's changed in that period is, is the threat profile has changed dramatically. Yeah, talk to me about that. 25 years, it's a it's a very different city. It's a very different world. It is, absolutely. And if I go to the reference point of, uh, you know, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, um, she died a year after 9-11, which, of course, saw the arguably the global transformation in, in how we think about terrorism and approach terrorism. Um, since that time, we've seen that metamorphosis of terrorism take a further step from being, you know, uh, constructed and organised and um directed by terrorist entities to a um, almost a societal mobilization of lone actors, as we call them over here, people who are self-radicalizing uh, and then go on to either plan an attack or actually conduct one. Mm. So apply that to now. If you were in charge of trying to figure out how to protect and keep everybody safe at these events that will unfold a week from today, what, what would be the top of the checklist? So the easy one almost is vehicles. Um, there are extensive barrier systems around Westminster. Uh, a few years ago, we invested quite heavily in, in creating a semi-permanent gating structure there, which we can effectively close down that footprint to stop any vehicles coming in. The, the real challenge are these lone actors who, uh, more often than not, do not feature on the uh, intelligence services radar and are capable of carrying um, small, easily concealed, bladed weapons in particular, into crowds. There is a search and screening operation around the Palace of Westminster, which is what we call our Parliament. So those people who wish to file past uh, Her Majesty's coffin and, and pay their respects, uh, they will have been screened. That's a pretty easy and common thing for us to achieve. You've been speaking about uh, roadblocks, uh, searching people for weapons, that type of thing. You're also, I suppose, worrying about airspace. You're also worrying about what's going on underground with the tube, the, the subway system there in London, protecting all of it simultaneously. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So actually the safest place to be uh, over the next week or so will be in that central footprint because most of our resources will be focused uh, on that area. Um, in terms of airspace, um, we now have a uh, much more sophisticated approach to protecting against drones. I was going to say that was another thing that would have changed radically since since Prentice Diana's funeral 25 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. We've had um, some, some recent cases in the UK where um, drones have been used um, nefariously. 
and we've been very, very effective at uh, detecting them, tracking them back and arresting offenders. Uh, here in the United States, when there's a big state funeral, um, it tends to happen often at Washington National Cathedral, and you have Secret Service playing a lead role. You have all kinds of other agencies involved, from the local D.C. police to the the security entourages that accompany foreign leaders who may have come to town. Who is running the show in the U.K.? So the Metropolitan Police Service are running the show. There's no ambiguity about that at all. Um, they are incredibly well practiced at working with uh, visiting nationals. The Americans are very demanding customers, um, and, and that's okay. You know, your president would expect to be treated in the same way over here as King Charles would be expected to be treated uh, at some future point that hopefully he, he visits uh, the US. Nick Aldworth, thank you. You're welcome. He is former UK National Coordinator for Counterterrorism, also founder and director of Risk to Resolution Limited, a private security consultancy. Most people who live in mobile home parks don't own the land underneath their homes, and that can leave them at the mercy of the big companies that do. Because despite the name, mobile homes really aren't that mobile. The park knows that they cannot pick up their home and leave, and so these complaints have really just gone ignored. Today on our daily podcast, Consider This, the story of a group of residents who are taking their landlord to court. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, the backstory as to why the oldest boys' choir in Europe is, as of today, admitting girls. Stocks gain ground for the fourth straight session today. The Dow rose nearly three-quarters of a percent, 230 points, to close at 32,381. S&P gained more than one percent to finish up at 4110. The Nasdaq pulled in more than one and a quarter percent. It ended the day at 12,266. A development company is canceling plans to build a hotel near Fenway Park in Boston. OTO Development had the city's permission to move forward with the project. The hotel was to be built at the corner of Boylston and Ipswich Streets, which is currently a gas station. But the Boston Business Journal reports the company is now backing out. No word yet on why. It's 619. WBUR supporters include Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. The Red Sox are off tonight, but they will host the Yankees for a two-game set starting tomorrow night. In the forecast, clouds increasing tonight, temperatures dipping only to the upper 60s. Tomorrow could make it to 80 degrees, could have thunderstorms letting loose in the afternoon and evening. The National Weather Service says some of them could be heavy, especially inland. Then things should dry up for the second half of the week. Sunny on Wednesday, still around 80 degrees, but only about the 70s after that. 75 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR.
On a Monday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Starting today, one of the oldest boys' choirs in Europe will begin admitting girls for the first time since it was founded in the year 975 AD. The Regensburg Domspatzen, or Cathedral Sparrows in English, is changing its course as it recovers from a dark period in its thousand-year history. NPR's Rob Schmitz brings us this story. The Cathedral Sparrows seem to be chirping all at once on their bus ride from their boarding school to a concert venue in their Bavarian hometown of Regensburg. The boys range from eight years old to teenagers. They represent the Regensburg Cathedral, whose Gothic spires have dominated the city's skyline since the year 700. A few centuries later, this boys' choir was established. And through the next thousand years, Its members have sung the music of countless composers, each one's life going by in the relative blink of an eye, their work living on through these voices. On this evening, the choir sings music from Beethoven to celebrate the composer's 250th birthday. They're all dressed in navy suits, white shirts and ties. They're all holding books of sheet music in front of them. And of course, they're all boys. That last part will change starting this week. I was quite surprised to hear they're letting girls into our school. I'm a bit skeptical as to how well the school will function with girls. We're so used to just being among boys. 13-year-old Johannes Feber hasn't yet warmed up to the idea of choir girls taking classes alongside the choir boys. He and his friend Maximilian Steiner relax after a full day of classes in the choir's boarding school, which, apart from music, specializes in the sciences. Steiner, who's 15, feels better about admitting girls into the choir. I think it's a step in the right direction, and it's long overdue. We're way behind on this issue. It's a matter of equality. Girls should have the same opportunities as us boys when it comes to education. My sister couldn't come to the school, and now it's too late for her. The first female members of the Regensburg Domspatzen will attend school with the boys, but will have a separate choir that will be under the direction of a female conductor. Designing to allow girls in was part of a long and broader decision-making process about the future of the choir. Christian Heiss is the conductor of the boys' choir. We've made a lot of changes here in recent years. We rebuilt the school, modernized it, made it nicer. So then we asked, how do we want to use these new facilities? We came to the conclusion to allow girls to benefit from them as the boys do. Heiss calls it a revolutionary step in the choir's thousand-year history, and it comes after what was a tough century for the choir. Nuremberg, 1938. At an annual Nazi rally, Adolf Hitler addressed Germany's young people. Deutschland wird einzeln. The Regensburg Domspatzen sang at this rally. Hitler was a fan of the choir, friends with its director, and gave regular donations to it. It was Hitler who made the choir what it is today. Magnus Meyer was a choir boy with the Domspatzen in the 1980s. He says Hitler used the Domspatzen as a propaganda tool for Nazi Germany. In the run-up to World War II, the choir toured internationally for the first time and sang secular songs, a showcase supported by the Nazi regime. All of that ended at the conclusion of the Second World War, but another period of darkness for the choir followed. Decades of systemic physical and sexual abuse. 
And as a young boy, Magnus Meyer was one of hundreds of victims. The school director then, Johann Meyer, was one of the worst. He'd been an officer in the war, and his punishment methods were similar to the sort Nazis carried out in the camps. I truly believe if murder were not a crime, they would have killed us. According to court documents, when Meyer was a 10-year-old choir boy, he was regularly hit in the face by his school director. Whenever his homework had mistakes, the choir prefect punched him with a closed fist in the stomach. The same happened when he and his friends were caught chatting at night in their rooms. Because of what was happening to me at school, I deliberately did my worst work. I handed in blank pages for assignments so that I'd be kicked out of school. An investigation commissioned by the Catholic Diocese of Regensburg found that Meyer was one of 547 Domspatzen choir boys who were subjected to physical and sexual abuse at the hands of priests and teachers at the boarding school from 1945 to 2015. The choir was run by Jörg Radzinger, elder brother of former Pope Benedict XVI, when most of the abuse occurred. Ratzinger denied knowing about it, and by the time the abuse came to light, most of the perpetrators had died. The church compensated victims like Meyer with payments of around $30,000 each. As kids, we didn't know any better. We thought the beatings and abuse were normal. It wasn't until later that I realized none of it was normal. And that's when I started to deal with the trauma. That's the problem. We all thought we deserved it, that it was God's will. It's only now that I realize why I still struggle with certain things. While the Regensburg Domspatzen Choir has moved on from the abuse scandal, Meyer, now 50, still struggles with post-traumatic stress disorder and borderline personality disorder. He says the abuse consumed his entire life, preventing him from going to university, finding a meaningful career. His settlement hasn't been enough to pay for the therapy he still requires, and he's filed several lawsuits over it. Meyer says the decision to allow girls into the choir is a good one, and he says it's likely an effort to rebrand the choir and to try and leave the past behind. As for him, he says he'd never send a child to the choir. Back in Regensburg, choir director Christian Heiss says admitting girls to the choir has nothing to do with the abuse scandal. He says the choir can never sweep its past under the carpet, but the abuse happened in the previous century, the choir leadership has changed, and the church led a thorough investigation listening to the victims. And this is now our job, to make sure it never happens again. It's a highly sensitive issue we take very seriously. At the Domspatzen concert, audience member Sabine Schick says she's thrilled for the choir's future. She says the choir is special and means a lot to the region. She says the abuse scandal was dreadful and shameful, but she's trying to focus on the positive. Why not move forward with the girls' choir after a thousand years, she asks. While she doesn't want to throw away old traditions, she says it's always good to venture on a new path. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Regensburg.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Clouds should be on the increase through the evening hours. Temperatures only falling as far as the upper 60s overnight tonight. Still on the sticky side tonight. Tomorrow could inch up to around 80. We could be in for a couple of strong to severe thunderstorms tomorrow afternoon, everywhere east of Berkshire County, Rhode Island, and northern Connecticut as well. 75 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 6.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Lyric Opera's La Boheme. Puccini's classic moves in reverse from tragedy to hope at Emerson Colonial Theater. Opens September 23rd. BLO.org. Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative. Your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. And Volante Farms in Needham, with fall blooming mums, perennials, pumpkins, and corn stalks in stock now for your garden. VolanteFarms.com.